from the unreal to the real lead us from darkness unto light lead us from death to immortality om peace 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 today i would like to speak about the buddha but instead of concentrating on the life story of buddha we would like to talk about his uh, central teachings today bhagavan buddha Uh, there is this nice story about him after he attained enlightenment bodhi uh, this, this story is narrated by Houston Smith at the beginning of his chapter on buddhism in his book the R- religions of the world um he says that attaining uh, enlightenment the buddha decided to teach humanity and he is walking and then somebody sees him a young shepherd boy and uh, that that boy calls out to him what are you and the uh, i mean a houston smith remarks that many people have been asked who are you many people ask who are you but very few people in history have been asked what are you so amazing was the appearance the expression the, the shining countenance of the buddha that this boy little boy burst out asking what are you are you a god the buddha said no are you an angel uh, i'm sure in uh, the indian context it would have meant uh, one of the higher the dwellers of the higher worlds what well, are you an angel he says no are you a human being and the buddha says no what are you and he says i am the awakened buddha meaning thereby that the rest of us are either sleeping or dreaming or sleepwalking there is something a higher life into which we awaken and that is the message of the buddha the buddha walked on to find his first group of disciples who were actually uh, a group of five ascetics with whom the buddha had practiced severe austerities and to them he gave his first teaching uh, the what is called the dhamma chakra pravartana sutra the teaching on the the turning of the wheel of dharma now we know the story of the buddha that how uh, in his youth he had been accustomed to extraordinary luxury how he gave all all of that up and then uh, for years together practiced intense austerity especially with these this group of five hermits Uh, he went to the extent of nearly starving himself to death in search of uh, enlightenment so the first thing that he taught them and when he first came to them these five were not willing to learn from him because they thought uh, he has abandoned the way of austerity look at this this fellow he he was with us now he abandoned us and he is probably gone back to his luxury or whatever but then they saw his that remarkable expression and the peace on his face and they were amazed and they they listened to him and the buddha first of course told them the famous teaching of the middle path that uh, on the spiritual path 
not luxury, neither um, too much austerity, neither will, is helpful to spirituality, the middle path. And then the Buddha gave his central teaching, the so-called Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths which he uh, transmitted to this first group of disciples, upon which it is said, hearing which they all became enlightened. These Four Noble Truths are basically the sum and substance of um, the entire teaching of Buddhism. They are, they are the foundation, so to say. And so today in this session I thought we will take a closer look at the Four Noble Truths. I mean, we all know the Four Noble Truths. When we were at school, I remember we had, to, we had this uh, chapter on Buddhism in our social sciences and the Four Noble Truths, we had to memorize them and we've got, I think, one or two marks when you write down the Four Noble Truths or something like that in your examination. And so we all know that. The first Noble Truth is that there is suffering, Dukkha. The second Noble Truth is that there is a cause of suffering and that is desire, uh, Trishna. And the third Noble Truth is that there is an end to suffering. Uh, called nirvana, release, uh, cessation. And then the fourth noble truth is that there is a way to go beyond suffering. There is a method to it uh, that is called marga, the way. The well-known ashtanga marga, the eightfold way. So these are the, this is the uh, four noble truths. We all know, we have heard about it, we have read about it. But let's take a closer look today uh, at this wonderful teaching very simple, very direct, very logical, uh, 2,500 years ago, and it appeals to our hearts even today. It inspires us. It is practical. Uh, it is something that is a blessing to each of us in our daily lives when we hear about it, think about it, and try to implement a little bit of it also in our lives. The first noble truth, so this is uh, all based on this very important sutra. The sutra literature in Buddhism is the teachings of the Buddha himself, they are called the sutras. The Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. And there the first noble truth is the truth that there is suffering, Dukkha. Dukkha is the word in Sanskrit and in Pali also, it means suffering. We know the story how the Buddha, when he was the prince Siddhartha, Gautama Siddhartha, he, um, his father had kept him secluded away from all kinds of suffering because it had been prophesied that this boy is going to either become a great emperor or become a great monk and teacher. And of course his father, uh, who was a king, wanted his son to be a king and an emperor and not to be a monk. And so he kept the prince secluded away from all kinds of suffering, kept him in great luxury so that his mind would not go to the sufferings of the world. But who can stop the workings of faith, of, of fate? And uh, one day the prince was on his chariot, with his charioteer, going out into the city and then he saw the sight, the famous, the four sights that he saw. First he saw an, uh, he, he saw an old person tottering with old age, walking with the help of a stick. The next he saw a sick person uh, lying helplessly. And third he saw a dead person being carried to the cremation ground. So old age, disease, death, and in each case he asked the uh, a charioteer that what has happened to this person? Will it happen to my father and, and my 
uh, wife and child and to me. And the charioteer said, yes, this is old age. It happens to everybody, even to you, O prince. This is disease. It happens to everybody, even to you, O prince. This is death. It is inevitable. All will die, including you, O prince. And as he was thinking thus, he sees the fourth side, which is a monk who, is, who has set out in search of enlightenment. And so this put in the mind of the prince the uh, idea that I must seek a, so a solution to this inevitable suffering, which is uh, for everybody. It's there in life. I was thinking that these four no these sights which he saw, old age, and disease and death, in our modern world, how carefully we avoid these sights. You know, right now, we are under the grip of this pandemic, the um, COVID-19 virus all over the world, but especially so here in New York City. Uh, I was speaking with a doctor uh, here, and we were discussing this, you know, that how the doctors and the medical care professionals in the emergency rooms in the hospital, they are watching this life and death battle every day. And many of them are traumatized by what they are seeing, this terrible struggle to save people, most of whom are dying, thousands and thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of infected uh, infections and patients. And yet, most of us, we do not see it because of the system that it is all um, taken away from ambulance comes and takes away the patient into the hospital. If they survive, they come back. If they don't, they die there. But we don't see the actual desperate battles. Everything is on TV these days, even war. But somehow, uh, because it's probably seen as um, not good form, it's not polite to s show uh, the sufferings of people, you don't actually see the suffering of the patients in the emergency rooms, in the ICUs directly. Um, and of course, there are privacy laws and all, everything. So the result of it is that we are insulated from the suffering which is going on right now. That makes for a pleasant life for the rest of us, more or less pleasant life. But the downside is that just like that, the prince who was insulated from suffering, we are also insulated from suffering by the system we have today. Why just New York? It's the same system all over the world today. Uh, we don't get to see old age and disease and death directly, day after day. I was thinking that just about 100 years ago, when the hospital system was not so widespread, so the disease would be in, in, our, in our houses. The patient would be a member of our family for whom, whether you like it or not, whether you uh, enjoy it or not, you have to take care of this person who is sick in your house. The assisted living facilities into which we send our uh, old people, our elderly uh, members of the family, there are very good reasons that maybe the care is better and everything, but the fact is that then that suffering is no longer before our eyes. It is shunted out. We don't have to confront suffering uh, which is natural, which is there, but somehow we have hidden it from our eyes. Similarly, poverty. We don't want to look at poverty and homelessness. We don't want to look at disease. We don't want to look at old age. The downside is this um, insight which the prince got. that There is pervasive suffering. And we must find a way out of it. 
This insight we don't get. As a result, we are shocked when the suffering spills out and we can no longer avoid it, like a pandemic. Uh, it is everywhere now and we, we have to um, confront it. It's there in everybody's lives now. Somebody said to me a couple of months ago when it was just starting, Swami, many people are going to ask, why is this happening? Why is there so much suffering? Why are people, um, why is the whole world in the grip of this suffering? And I was thinking, if you ask the Buddha, he would have probably said, why are you surprised? This is the very nature of life. You have insulated yourself from it. You live in a bubble and you don't see it. But it's always there. It has always been there. Individually, people struggled with disease, old age, death, and the rest of the world happily went on ignoring it. But now, when it spills over, once in a while it will. And then nobody can avoid it. And then we are shocked, as if something strange is happening. From a Buddhist perspective, suffering is universal and pervasive. Um, Swami Tapasyanandaji, who was the vice president of our order, I never met him, but I have heard from other senior monks that uh, he would say, Buddhism is a serious religion, by which he meant the, to begin in Buddhism, the first thing one must grasp is all is suffering. Not that there is happiness and suffering. No, all is suffering. Suffering is suffering, happiness is also suffering. So what is this universal truth of suffering which um, the Buddha taught? The first thing which we have to grasp in the beginning of our spiritual life. Let's take a closer look at it. The Buddhists speak of three, see, these four noble truths, the Buddha spoke of them in the first sutra, Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. He spoke of it, each of them in three phases, so to say. The first phase of the truth of suffering, he describes suffering, that there is this truth of suffering. The second phase is that we must understand what is suffering in our lives, notice it, what are the different kinds of suffering, how it operates in our lives and affects us. That's the second phase. The third phase is that when it becomes internalized, when the practitioner, the spiritual seeker, now whenever he or she comes in contact with samsara, we automatically know, we are not deceived, we know the nature of samsara is suffering. Whether evidently so or implicitly so, there is suffering everywhere. So these are the three phases. First, you, it is described, the truth of suffering. Second, we understand very kinds of suffering in our lives. And third, we internalize it, that we know the life we are leading is pervaded by suffering. So what are the kinds of suffering? The Buddhists speak of three kinds of suffering. Um, there is the suffering of suffering, the first kind. The suffering of suffering is nothing other than the sorrow and the misery that we all face, the physical pain and disease and the even animals and um, down to insects and plants, all living beings face suffering. Physical pain and in the higher creatures like us, there's also mental pain. There is uh, anxiety and uh, tension and fear. So physical and mental suffering, this is called suffering of suffering. And at this level, uh, there are mundane cures. So illness is there, 
And there's a cure. There is um, medicine. We don't have a vaccine yet for uh, COVID-19, but very soon, certainly we will have with all our resources. We will certainly within next one or two years, we will get this vaccine. So there is a cure. A, a medicine cures your illness. If you are bored, there are many ways of entertainment. TV is there and so on. Uh, for various kinds of mundane suffering, there are mundane solutions. But none of them are permanent. They may cure one type of suffering in one part of our lives, but the others are there. And they, the same suffering may come back again. Hunger. Eat, it is satisfied. But it comes back again later in the day. So similarly, uh, mundane cures are there, but nothing is permanent. Deeper than this is what the second type, which Buddhists call the suffering of change. Now this is a deeper level. The same suffering... Now what the Buddhists say that you take a deeper look at it, at three levels. The first level it is just pain, physical, mental. This deeper level, it is the suffering of change. What it means is, we reach out into the world for pleasure, for satisfaction, in objects, in people, in relationships, in activities. And we expect, they look very attractive to us. And we expect it will give us happiness. And initially it does also, for a short while. But then something happens. Something happens. That thing changes, which was beautiful and handsome at, at one time, does not, uh, is not, no longer that. That which was shiny and new, uh, latest gadget, now there is a better um, uh, phone on the market. And my, the earlier phone which I had purchased, which was so attractive, now it seems uh, outdated to me. So there is what we found to be attractive, uh, promising pleasure and happiness very soon changes. And not only do these objects of uh, pleasure, they change, but our mind also changes. So we expect to get happiness from these things and after some time, our expectations change. But we don't learn. The moment certain things stop providing us with happiness, we don't, do not like it anymore. Maybe we want to get rid of it. Instead of learning that, oh, this thing, it seemed to, pr to promise so much happiness, it did not give as much as it seemed to promise. Not only that, now it does not seem to be a source of happiness anymore. Whether it's a person or a place or a food or an activity or a job or a gadget or my own uh, body or youth or health, all of these things disappoint. But we don't learn the lesson. We immediately move on to another thing. That thing will give me happiness and we start chasing that thing. Why does this happen? This happens because change is pervasive. Things change. This change is a source of unhappiness. Why do things change? This is an insight in Buddhism that all things are interdependent. Nothing exists by itself. The language they use is nothing exists by, from its own side. Everything is other-powered, so to say. It is... Um, uh, dependent on other things. Every entity is made of components and depends on those components. And if it is under the power of other things, every entity is under the power of other things for its own birth, for its existence and for its decay and death. So continuously if you depend on something else, you are, you are subject to change. As those underlying factors change, the entity also will start changing. By entity I mean a body, it could be your mind, it could be um, your possessions, 
everything in this universe relationships our own thoughts all of these are dependent on other things being interdependent this is subject to continuous change now it is not really that change itself is the source of unhappiness now usually it is in our unenlightened state but one must see that those who are enlightened the buddha for example or the great buddhist masters who followed buddha, uh, the buddha they also after enlightenment they lived in the same world they lived in the same body the changing world and the changing body and uh, possibly the changing mind and yet they claimed that they have gone beyond suffering so change is not tantamount to suffering it is our unenlightened state in which we grasp at changing objects thinking that they are going to be unchanging sources of joy for us if you put it that way it sounds so illogical and and uh, crude but that's how we behave it's our unenlightened approach to change our lack of knowledge of reality which is the cause of suffering so this is the suffering of change suffering of change and this leads to a deeper understanding of change the third level of uh, understanding of sorrow or suffering first level suffering of suffering second deeper level suffering of change third level what did they what the buddhists call pervasive suffering pervasive suffering is this, this unenlightened state in which we have this body mind and we grasp this body mind as ourselves i am this body mind by the way i am using the terms body mind um but the terms you will actually find find in the buddhist uh, books uh, they are slightly different and the technical term would be the panchaskandha the five aggregates so instead of saying body mind um the buddhist terminology is five aggregates in the five aggregates first is the rupa skandha which is the body the physical body and then the next four are all mental there is the vedana which is uh, sensation all the sensations that we are having all the time and which can be pleasant unpleasant or neutral then there is sangya uh, the first um, uh, conceptions that we we label these sensations book tree man nice all of these things uh, are the sangya skandha, uh, skandha and then comes the samskara skandha all the storehouse of our past karma our impressions each individualized uh, you know what is what we call our personality our tendencies our memories our desires the samskara each of us has this baggage and then the vigyana skandha vigyana skandha is the consciousness uh, the awareness itself so the last four first one is the body and the last four are what we call the mind and awareness for the clarification of of vedanta students is we are not talking about pure consciousness or um, brahman or atman nothing like that we're talking about this empirical mental awareness which we all have just now we are all aware that much so these are the five skandhas pancha skandha this is what i am instead of saying five skandhas every time i am just saying body mind it refers to the same thing our unenlightened grasping of the body mind as ourselves this is the basis of what the buddhists call pervasive suffering as long as we are we think of ourselves as a self in this body and mind uh, we are subject to uh, endless suffering and uh, the take away from this pervasive suffering is note that 
even for the buddha body mind continued after enlightenment also there the buddha had the body and that uh, presumably had a mind a, uh, an enlightened mind so body mind again itself is not the source of suffering in our present condition as unenlightened beings body mind is the source of suffering and as long as we have that that is pervasive suffering in this condition um, whatever happens is infected by suffering but note that body mind themselves are not suffering after enlightenment the same body mind will not be a problem for the enlightened being so it's actually ignorance which is the cause of suffering but in our present state what the buddhist says that we have to admit that we are unenlightened in un- in an unenlightened state this body mind itself is the source of suffering and since we are always with the body and mind everything in our life is infected by suffering this is called pervasive suffering <coughs> so three levels not three kinds but three levels of understanding of the of uh, suffering in our life the day to day suffering which is called suffering of suffering the fact that there is change which is at the root of why we are suffering and even deeper this ignorant clinging to body mind and everything that comes from it so this is suffering a uh, pervasive suffering another way of looking at the same thing uh, is what is called eight types of suffering by the way by now you must have realized that the buddhists are very big on four sides and three phases and uh, four types of suffering and eight types of suffering so the uh, buddhism is very analytic it uh, looks at the human situation and analyzes it into its factors very logical very analytic so you'll keep coming across three types of this and four types of that eight types of suffering same suffering analyzed in another way so this eight types of suffering comes from a great tibetan master songkhapa um he is central to tibetan buddhism he lived about 500 years ago um he is um, a good way of understanding it would be what adi shankaracharya is to vedanta in hinduism songkhapa is to tibetan buddhism so that's the cent- importance of songkhapa in fact one of the four main traditions of tibetan uh, buddhist monasticism the gelugpa to which the dalai lama belongs that was founded by songkhapa and the central commentarial texts of tibetan buddhism many of them are written by uh, songkhapa Uh, why i'm going on and on about him is because uh, i was introduced to his work last year in a course on indo-tibetan madhyamika buddhism at harvard so it was a privilege to study the works of songkhapa this uh, uh, it is amazing the original teachings of the buddha 2500 years ago and uh, then about 500 years later the commentaries the karikas written by nagarjuna a few hundred years after that the great uh, philosopher chandrakirti commenting on the uh, the texts of nagarjuna and then uh, nearly 800 years 900 years after that comes um, songkhapa in um, tibet um, and about 5 600 years after that we are studying it in 21st century Uh, you know there at at Harvard University so it's an amazing journey of 2500 years the same teachings so what does songkhapa say eight types of suffering 
no need to feel bewildered it's the same thing but in a different way of uh, way of looking at it so he says the first one is the suffering of uh, birth second one is suffering of uh, old age third one is suffering of disease fourth one is suffering of uh, death fifth one is the suffering of coming into contact with what is unpleasant sixth is the suffering of the severance of contact losing contact with what is pleasant the seventh is the suffering of my desires not being fulfilled and the eighth is the um, suffering of um, the ignorance of being attached to body mind so eight types but it's very interesting uh, it's a very sophisticated way of looking at suffering look at the first four these are the sites that the buddha saw including old age disease and death and he includes birth so birth is suffering and it's traumatic we forget luckily we forget but being born is a very traumatic process um, psychologists say that um, you know babies have this trauma while being born and it has an effect on our uh, life thank god we don't consciously remember that then there is the suffering of old age bill conrad who's here uh, he is 95 years old and he was telling me a few days back was quoting betty davis and he said uh, betty davis said that suffering is not for uh, old age is not for sissies old age is not for sissies old age is suffering disease is suffering as we know all today all over the world we're all scared of the pandemic and then death is suffering uh, it's interesting that the bhagavad gita sri krishna um he says to arjuna in the 13th chapter of the bhagavad gita janma mrityu jara vyadhi dukha doshanudarshanam etad gyanam iti proktam he says this is knowledge to inquire into the sufferings of birth death old age disease janma mrityu jara vyadhi dukha doshanudarshanam birth is suffering death is suffering old age is suffering disease is suffering and when you understand that these are suffering this is the basis the foundations for gyana for enlightenment exactly the same teaching which you find there so these are the first four now these first four can be actually telescoped into two contact with what is unpleasant and loss of contact with what is pleasant pain and disease and and um, um the feebleness of old age and slowing down of mental faculties this is contact with what is unpleasant and loss of contact with what is pleasant my youth my energy my uh, enthusiasm um, my possessions and money and job all of that so if you lose contact that is suffering so the all the sufferings of the world are now telescoped into collapsed into two and these two also can be further all kinds of suffering these two also can be further compressed into one which is the um my desires not being satisfied that's the seventh type which sankhapa speaks of everywhere we have suffering one thing you must know for sure something in my mind some expectation is not fulfilled or some hope is dashed my desire is not fulfilled it may be justified i may be right to expect it but it is not fulfilled i had something in mind it is not fulfilled hence i am unhappy simple fact but very profound fact 
You see, remember the second noble truth which is going to come is desire is the cause of suffering. So here he says, it is a desire which is not fulfilled which leads to suffering. All suffering at the back of the mind is something which was some kind of expectation, desire which was not met, frustrated. Frustration of my desire is suffering. And then the eighth one is basically the, at the root of every kind of suffering. Even this seventh one, they are all based on the last eighth one. The eighth one is clinging to body-mind as self. This ignorance-based clinging to, you will say five, five aggregates, but remember five aggregates are body-mind. So this is Sankhapa's analysis of suffering, eight types of suffering. There is um, one more point to be made about suffering. So Buddhists, as you can see, somebody said they are really experts at raining on our parade. <laughs> they are big on suffering. There is one more point. Each of the four noble truths has four characteristics. So I will speak only about the four characteristics of the first noble truth, that is the truth of suffering. Four characteristics are um, anityam, impermanence, Dukkham, suffering itself, Shunyam, emptiness, Anatma, selflessness. What does it mean? Very briefly, Anityam, as we saw, things change. On the surface of it, it seems that things change, yes we know that. Things are born, they exist for some time, then they die. That's the first level. But when you look deeply at it, it is not only that things born and they exist, even when they seem to exist in a stable way, moment to moment everything is changing. Not only anityam, kshanikam. Anityam means impermanent. Kshanikam means momentary. Moment to moment things are changing. That moment to moment these things are changing, this is um, um, also not so difficult. Modern physics will tell us that yes, moment to moment things are changing. If you look even further, and more deeply, that the Buddhist will say that, that not only moment to moment it is changing, from the very beginning and throughout, the causes of destruction of everything are already there. What it means is, normally we think of a thing being born, and then it lives and it grows and develops, and then it declines and dies. But the Buddhist way of looking at it is, being born is the start of the process of dying. Birth itself is the beginning of dying. Creation itself is the beginning of destruction. The processes which lead to the death of the body, processes which lead to the disintegration of any entity, they are already at work when the thing is born or produced. And this is true. So this is the deep understanding of anityam. Everything is fundamentally impermanent, irredeemably so. You, it cannot be uh, remedied. And this leads to the next one, which is Dukkham. That being impermanent and clinging to these impermanent things as if they are, we want to live in this body and be young forever and have these objects which will give us happiness, expect people to uh, behave nicely with us forever, all the time. No. This is, not, this is not justified and yet we do that and this is Dukkham, the second factor of the first noble truth. This leads to the third factor, Shunyam. Emptiness has many aspects but one aspect of emptiness is that the, when we expect that there is a self, I am not the body and mind, 
I am a separate self in charge of the body and mind. This is my body and my mind. The Buddhist says there is no such self. This is directly op uh, in opposition to the dualistic Hindu schools. The Nyaya, the Vaisheshika, which said, apart from body and mind, there is one Atma. The Buddhist says, apart from body and mind, but that Atma, what is there? Empty, Shunyam. There is no such thing. Because we think that, that leads to suffering. And then, the fourth one, selflessness. The first one is anityam, impermanence. Second one is dukkham, suffering. Third one is shunyam, emptiness. The fourth one is selflessness or anatma. The shunyata talks about that apart from the five aggregates or body and mind, there is no self. And the anatma, selflessness, talks about that this in these five aggregates, in the body-mind, there also there is no self. If you look at the body-mind, the physical body, the organs, the mind, thoughts, feelings, ego, which one of them is the self? These two might seem to be, difference might be, seem to be subtle. One is uh, the emptiness of self and the other one is selflessness. There is no self apart from the body and mind. And there is no self in the body and mind also. So these are two subtle aspects. One thing, those who are trained in Advaita Vedanta will immediately notice, the Advaitic concept of Atman is neither of them. When you say the Atman, Satchidananda, is it an entity apart from body and mind? The example, Remember the example of gold and the ornaments. Is gold an entity apart from the golden necklace? Is there something called gold and something called a necklace? You immediately say, no, 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 no. Right there. And in the necklace, the name necklace or the form necklace, is any one of them gold? No, no, no. Gold is the reality of the necklace, you might say. Similarly, when, when uh, the Buddhist says, apart from the body-mind, there is no separate entity called the self, the Advaitin says, yes, we are not saying that the Atma is something separate from the body and mind. In the body and mind, none of those constituents are the self, when the Buddhist says, Anatma. The Vedantin, Advaitin can agree, yes, we are not saying that the body or the mind or the ego is the Atma. Rather, it is the reality, the existence consciousness in which the body and mind appear, that one is Atma. So anyway, that's a aside. Uh, what I want to say is, when the Buddhist denies a separate self and a self in the constituents of body and mind, it seems to deny the Hindu idea of Atma altogether. It does deny the dualistic conception of Atma, but not the Advaitic conception of Atma. Alright. This is the first noble truth. Um, dukkha. But Buddha did not stop there. Buddha, if he had stopped there, it would be pessimistic. Uh, there is um, a philosopher, Zimmer, he wrote a book on the philosophies of India. He says, apparently the philosophies of India seem to be pessimistic, but actually they are optimistic. They say there is suffering, and if you stop there, it's pessimistic. But they all say that there is a, actually there is a solution to suffering. There is a freedom from suffering. The Buddha also does that. Um, a great um, Indian philosopher, about 500 years ago, Madhavacharya, who wrote a book, Sarva Darshana Sangraha, collection of all the philosophies. So he describes the Buddhistic approach as Chikitsaka Anameva, like doctors. So it's particularly apt in today's environment, today, where we are facing great medical crisis. Just like doctors, uh, 
they identify they uh, they identify the disease the symptoms what is the suffering step 1 dukkha second they identify does it have a cause what is is it just there or is there a cause behind it buddha says there is a cause desire and if the cause is there if you remove the cause then the disease will go away if you if you can kill the virus or develop immunity for the virus then the um, suffering caused by the virus will go away so that is a cure is there a cure so yes there is a cure buddha says there is a cure to suffering not only virus suffering but all kinds of suffering and he calls it nirvana third noble truth and is there a treatment a method right now for the virus we don't have a method we don't have a treatment but the buddha has a as a treatment for all kinds of suffering calls it marga the way which is fourth noble truth so chikitsakanami was just like a doctor and the philosopher saint approaches the problem of life just like a doctor disease cause remedy treatment so second noble truth is the the cause the cause according to the buddha is Uh, desire the the word they use is trishna or tanha the pali is tissa the sanskrit is trishna it means thirst this thirst for pleasures of the world and more deeply for existing in this limited form i want to exist like this so at this level causality is discussed the, the buddhists are big on causality before we go into the details which might seem complicated the basic idea is very simple the basic idea of causality is this arising that arises this not arising that does not arise so if there is a cause there will be an effect if you remove the cause effect also will be removed if there is an effect suffering there must be a cause and the cause buddha says is desire and we'll see how that is a cause and if you remove that then the suffering will be removed how does this work one thing is that there's a great similarity between the analysis of the buddhists and shankaracharya as we saw desire itself which is born of is born of ignorance so avidya leads to karma avidya is ignorance and uh, karma is desire and because we have desire we act on the basis of that desire to fulfill that desire and that is called karma so all action based on desire which is based on ignorance that action gives rise to results and these results lead to future lives and the cycle of birth and death continues to repeat ignorance leads to uh, desire desire leads to action and action perpetuates samsara the results of action you have to get so life after life keeps coming avidya kama karma ignorance desire and action this is a phrase that shankaracharya uses number of times and very nicely encapsulates the buddhist uh, thinking about it only there are differences there is a major difference according to shankaracharya according to advaita vedanta avidya ignorance you should ask what ignorance about what in vedanta it's very clear ignorance about our real nature that we are ever fulfilled in infinite existence consciousness and once you know that there will be no more desire because you are ever fulfilled what could you desire and so there will be no more action based on desire and so the problem of samsara will be solved in buddhism ignorance is about avidya is about 
the emptiness, uh, the emptiness nature of the self, that there is no permanent entity called the self, either apart from the body or mind, or in the body and mind. An emptiness of the world, every entity in the world is said to be empty. There is no uh, independently existing entity in the world. They are all uh, interdependent realities. So this thing we don't realize and therefore there is desire uh, and therefore there is karma based on desire. So the Buddhists have an elaborate scheme of causality where how desire leads to life after life and suffering. They call it Pratitya Samutpada. This is taught by Buddha himself. The central idea of Buddhism, I will quickly summarize the thing. It's called the twelve linked chain. The twelve links, a chain. And this chain binds us in samsara. It's very interesting actually. The twelve links, I'll go through it. But remember, the core idea is this arising, that arises. This not arising, that does not arise. These twelve links will show us what is samsara, how we are bound and how to be free. So what are these 12 links? It goes like this very quickly. In past lives, because of ignorance, avidya, we have done karma. So avidya and karma are there from past lives. As we go from one life to another, there is something they call vijnana. Vijnana here is not the vijnana of Vedanta or of Sri Ramakrishna. Here it means a kind of basic consciousness which pushes us from one life to the next. Body dies, a collection of mental uh, skandhas, they move from one life to another, um, more like a transmission of a wave, not like a transmission of a particular entity. Now, this is Vijnana, this is the third link. Now it leads to the development of the body in the mother's womb in case of human beings, for example. So that is called the, uh, the fourth link, which is Nama Rupa. Avidya, Karma, then Vijnana, Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa develops, body develops. As body develops, the sense organs become active. That's the fifth link called Shadayatana, the six sense bases. Six sense bases. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mental faculties. Thinking, feeling, willing, understanding, all of these things. So, the six sense bases, uh, Shadayatana, they become active. As they become active, they come into contact with their respective objects. Eyes see form, ears hear sound, tongue tastes sweet and bitter and sour. So that, that is called, the sixth link is sparsha, touch, contact. Touch does not mean physical touch only, any sense organ touching, even thinking. Um, so that is contact. And contact leads to experience. In Sanskrit, Vedana. Vedana, the experience can be, or sensation. It can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And based on these this sensations, some we like, some we do not like. It's very natural, based on our past experiences and the condition of the body, certain uh, kinds of experiences are pleasant, some are unpleasant. Due to the pleasant and unpleasant nature of these experiences, we inevitably have the next link which is called um, the uh, Trishna, or uh, uh, thirst develops. It, it's composed of two things, raga dvesha, likes and dislikes. It's a very simple movement. Because of pleasant and unpleasant experiences, we have likes for the pleasant thing we want to repeat, or we want similar experiences, and dislike for the unpleasant sensations, raga dvesha. And this raga dvesha leads to craving, this strengthens into uh, different kinds of craving. 
That craving is grasping. It is called upadana. I want those things, those sensations. Upadana, grasping. As the body ages, the body is unable to satisfy those graspings, those cravings. So then we develop what is, <coughs> what is called bhava. Bhava is the desire to exist in this kind of a body. The desire to satisfy my, my passions, my craving with the body. And this is what pushes us at the time of death into the next life. Bhava. Um, there is also the, another word used here, vibhava. That means there is an equal distaste for the old and dying body. So we want to give up. We are so attached to this body. But attachment is not because of the body. Attachment is because I want to satisfy my desires, my cravings through that body. When that body does not satisfy the cravings, it's become a burden. We actually develop a dispassion, the Buddhists say, and we want to get rid of it and, and move on. So bhava and vibhava. So bhava means pushes us into the next life. I remember um, when I was a kid, I saw this Hollywood movie um, in which a man had died and become a ghost. And he had a great craving for cigarettes. So in those days, cigarette smoking was much more common. Luckily, that's not so the case nowadays. So he had a great craving for cigarettes. And in the movie they had shown, he has a farm, a ghostly farm. And he, their cigarettes are there. But he cannot touch, because he's a ghost. Um, he cannot touch anything physical. So he's trying to grasp the cigarette, but his hand is passing through it all the time. I remember, even as a kid, I still remember the scene. It impressed me so much. And at that time, I did not know all this, this bhava. But I felt at that time instinctively, this is why people are reborn. There is a strong tendency, a desire in them. And this is what propels a great craving to exist again. To exist again in a body. So that pushes into the next life, that bhava. It pushes and uh, we, we are now in the third life. The first life was the past life, then this present life. Now we are in the next life. It pushes into the eleventh um, link, which is jati. Jati means birth. A new birth comes. And when birth is there, old age and death will be there. Jaramarana, the twelfth link. Jaramarana, old age and death. So these are the twelve links of samsara and spread across three lives. My earlier life, this life and what will happen in the next life. And these twelve links are in a cycle. Now remember, the thing to remember here is, this arising, that arises. This not arising, that does not arise. These twelve links, they show us how um, samsara arises. One leading to the other. As you move from one link to other. But it also shows us how to get out of samsara. If we do not want... Old age and death. That was the whole project of the Buddha. Remember how to overcome the suffering of old age and death. If we do not want old age and death, then we have to prevent this continuously being reborn. The cycle of rebirth. So jati has to be prevented. But to prevent rebirth, we must prevent that uh, desire to go into the next life, the bhava. To prevent the bhava, we must prevent the, uh, the cravings, the upadana which are there. But to prevent upadana, we must pre prevent the preceding one, which is the thirst, the uh, trishna. But the thirst will be there if we, do, if we do not prevent the one which precedes them, the pleasant and unpleasant sparsha, contact. But the contact is inevitable, unless we, uh, as long as we have the previous link, 
which is the vedana the 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 sensations and the, the vedana is, uh, is uh, uh, dependent on the previous link which is sparsha actually so sparsha will is dependent on sense organs if there are sense organs we will have contact the sense organs the shadayatana and sense organs are inevitable if we have a body the nama rupa the the uh, the roop the physical body which has the five senses and the mind the sixth and the body will be there um, if there is the previous lives vigyana the the basal consciousness which pushes us from life to life and that is there only because of um, past karma and past karma is there because of the first link in the chain avidya ignorance so if you remove ignorance the entire uh, chain the other 11 links they all fall down one after another so the the whole point is to overcome this ignorance about reality and that is done in the third link which says that if you ignore if you if you overcome ignorance what will happen in the third third noble truth which is noble truth of cessation dukkha nivritti cessation of sorrow the term used is nirvana uh, the pali term is nibbana nirvana literally means cessation there are um, two ways of looking at it there is a theravada there are different schools of buddhism the theravada idea is nirvana is extinguishing so somebody asked what happens to the buddha after the death of the buddha where does the buddha go and the buddha replied that um, if there is a flame and it's blown out will you say that the flame has gone to the north no south west east no up or down no and that's it so after the buddha's passing away buddha does not go anywhere it's like a flame being extinguished nirvana means extinction but extinction of what is it nothingness that the theravadins deny it's not that it becomes zero or nothingness but they refuse to give any positive dis- uh, description the idea is the whole project was to overcome suffering suffering is extinguished what more do you need then what is the state after that nirvana is the final ultimate there is no question of what is after nirvana it is a permanent state that is a theravada idea the mahayana idea like the tibetan buddhists they are mahayanists the mahayana idea is that not that it is extinguished the mind's ignorance is extinguished cravings are extinguished and suffering is extinguished but the enlightened mind continues in tibetan buddhism for example there is a description of it is possible that the enlightened mind will continue uh, for thousands of years in a state of meditation why i like the description was it immediately reminded me uh, of uh, sri ramakrishna's vision of swami vivekananda the saptarshi that he says in a vision he he saw a place of luminosity non duality in that non duality there were seven rishis i don't know how in not two there'll be seven but there are seven rishis who are immersed in the truth of non duality in med- deep meditation and a child of light comes the child of light is sri ramakrishna himself goes to one of those rishis arouses him from meditation and says that i'm going to the earth which is sunk in darkness in sorrow and will you will you not come with me and that rishi is who is born as narendranath as vivekananda but the point here is for thousands of years this is enlightened beings who are immer- immersed in meditation uh, on on the reality this is what uh, 
for example, Tibetan Buddhism or even generally Mahayana Buddhism claims, after enlightenment, it's the ignorance which is extinguished. It is the craving which is extinguished. Sorrow is extinguished. Not that the en enlightened being is extinguished. Enlightened one is still there. Anyhow, this is the difference between the two kinds of um, uh, ideals. In Theravada Buddhism, the ideal is Arhat. Arhat means enlightened being. Through your own efforts, you will get enlightenment, um, removal of craving, which will lead to removal of sorrow. The twelve linked chain will cease and you are free. Nirvana. Finished. That's the goal of Buddhism according to Theravada. According to Mahayana or Tibetan Buddhism also, uh, the goal is not just Arhat. Arhat is part of the goal, but the goal is to be a Bodhisattva. From the very beginning, the goal is not just your own nirvana, your own enlightenment, your own um, freedom from sorrow, but for everybody. Remember, the original Buddha's goal was how to overcome sorrow for everybody, not just himself. So that is called Bodhisattva. And from the beginning, the seeker takes this vow. And as the seeker pro proceeds in a spiritual path, at one point, the seeker, seeker, he or she, becomes an arhat, enlightened. But that's not the end. The bodhisattva goes on in the journey. Now the whole purpose is to enlighten other beings and to bring them out of sorrow. So the goal in Mahayana is actually not just to become arhat, it's to become a buddha. So there are many possible buddhas. And the ultimate goal will be to become the bodhisattva, becomes the buddha ultimately. And yeah, because of these two, the whole idea of what happens in Nirvana or after that is different in these two uh, broad streams of Buddhism. Just a little note here before we move on to the final truth, truth of the way. They talk about Nirvana, cessation, at three levels. Uh, one is, they call it um, temporary Nirvana, temporary cessation. Temporary cessation is in deep meditation for a while it is possible to overcome suffering. There is deep peace, contentment, light. Um, so in various kinds of yogic samadhis, it's actually possible to overcome suffering, but temporarily. Once you come out of it, <coughs> again come in contact with the world and the mind starts working. Sorrow is inevitable. That's why it's called temporary cessation. And why I'm mentioning this is, it is said that the Buddha... Before becoming a Buddha, uh, the prince Siddhartha, when he was seeking, he went to two teachers who taught him, from, what it, from his own accounts, what seems to be elements of Sankhya and Yoga. So he learned these yogic samadhis, which he incorporated later in different ways into Buddhism, in Buddhist meditation. But he was not satisfied with it, because he realized that this is not enough. This will, again, suffering will come back when you come out of this meditation. Um, then there is a second kind of nirvana which is called nirvana with residue, with remainder. What is that? After reaching enlightenment, the body and mind are still there because of past karma. And so the effects of karma are still felt. You continue as an enlightened being, as an arhat. Um, so this is very similar to the jivan mukta concept in uh, Vedanta. That even after realizing you are Brahman, you still are, uh, at least you appear to others as a body-mind and you interact with others. So this is called Nirvana with residue. There is a remainder of karma. And then the next one is again like the Videha Mukti of um, Vedanta. Uh, 
that is bodiless liberation that it's called nirvana without residue once the body of the buddha falls off or the body of the arhat falls off enters into permanent nirvana and the again what happens after that is different according to mahayana or theravada the mahayana is the bodhisattva may be reborn again but as a free being not uh, in bondage but only to help others in theravada there is no such concept the arhat is free finally uh, after nirvana after the fall of this particular body then how does one accomplish all this the truth of the eightfold way the fourth noble truth marga dukkha nivritti marga the way to the cessation of su- suffering this is called ashtanga marga the eightfold way very quickly the eightfold way what are they the um, there is um, a samyak drishti the right view what is the right view to put it briefly the four noble truths they themselves are the right view so basically you see in, in spiritual life a map is necessary an intellectual framework is necessary it need not be buddhism it could be something else but some kind of clarity what are we doing what are we pursuing is necessary so i mean vivekananda said intellect itself cannot uh, inspire you or lead you to enlightenment but it can obstruct you and the intellect says that this is meaningless this is foolish this is superstition you cannot proceed so a right view is necessary and in buddhism it means the four noble truths it is not enough the next one is right resolve samyak sankalpa i have understood the truth of suffering and there is a cause of that and i can be free of it but i must do it i must make up the resolve that i am going to be free of suffering in this life sri ramakrishna used to say this mild resolve will not do in uh, there is a untranslatable bengali phrase he uses dheeme te tala uh, there is a tabla playing so one kind of tabla playing is is a very slow beat he says that slow beat will not do you must be up and doing in this very life so right resolve is necessary the third one the, the next few are third fourth and fifth uh, when you take charge of your life we have decided we are going to be spiritual seekers now what do you do you take charge of your life make changes first at the level of speech samyak walk right speech which is truth hold on to the truth irrespective of fear or temptation and um, also non violent in speech that is do not hurt others do not speak harsh words even true words if they are harsh should not be spoken and be disciplined in speech do not speak too much then there is samyak karmanta right living so in that there are different concepts the the ethical living um, ahimsa do not hurt do not kill do not um, hurt other living beings non violence then there is brahmacharya uh, chastity for monks it is um, of course one set of rules strict and for householders another set of rules but for all brahmacharya then there is um, uh, the non stealing asteya do not take what is not yours then there is um, uh, the uh, uh, in fact the Buddh- buddhism prohibits consumption of intoxicants drinking drugs houston smith uh, quotes a funny story one of the old czars of russia he was given an option what should be the religion of his people so the options were you could have christianity you could have islam or buddhism but islam and buddhism prohibit drinking 
and the Tsar being Russian was fond of his vodka, so he chose Christianity. So I don't know how true the story is, but Houston Smith <laughs> quotes that story. Then there is the fifth um, step of the uh, eightfold way, and that is samyak ajiva, rightful livelihood. Not just your day-to-day -day life should be disciplined, but what we do for a living, that must be a moral thing. Not One cannot be a crook or a criminal uh, in, in our life and earn money, on, and on that money you live and try to be spiritual will not work. We see in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna how careful he was not to accept gifts from people he considered worldly or dishonest or selfish. So our livelihood should be honest livelihood. Um, and then there are some lists of acceptable jobs, non-acceptable. And I found it is amusing to see that the Buddha, like Jesus, it seems to be against tax collectors. So I think IRS people all throughout history, people don't like them. Uh, anyway, then so that is Samyak Ajiva, right livelihood. Then the next three are connected to meditation, uh, concentration. Samyak Vyayama, right effort. Buddhism above all is a pa path of self-effort. There is no God to appeal to. At the most the Buddha can inspire you, but um, you have to make the effort yourself. The Buddha speaks about the buffalo. If, if you remember, if you can visualize the buffalo in South Asian countries, muddy, waterlogged rice fields, and the buffalo is walking through the mud. Slow, hard work. He says, just like that, through the mud and the filth of desire and ignorance, one must cross it with one pointed view on, on the on the eightfold way, uh, holding on to that cross the filth and mud of passion and desire. Vya um, is called Samyak Vyayama, right effort. It's a path of willpower. You see, it sounds too difficult. Not really. We have plenty of willpower when it comes to what we want. People are up and doing, building business empires, conquering countries, um, getting PhDs, so much hard work goes into it. Even raising a family, so much hard work over so many years goes into it. So we have the willpower. I think Swami Ramakrishnanandaji told a young man who had come to become a monk that the amount of effort that you put in to, through, to get through one of your university examinations, that much effort if you give, it's enough for God-realization. So you can do it. It's hard, but you can do it. Samyak Vyayama right effort. Then Samyak Smriti, mindfulness. This I need not speak much about. This is so popular today. In America, it's a multi-billion dollar in industry and it comes from the seventh um, step of the Eightfold Way. Samyak Smriti, mindfulness. Pramado Vai Mrityu, inadvertence is death. Be being mindful, so the most common method is keeping the mind anchored to the breath. Being aware when you're breathing in, being aware that you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, being aware that you're breathing out. So, using that as an anchor, now you become aware of what's going on in the world, the sensations in the body. In each, whatever you are experiencing, are you, you are aware. You're breathing in now and breathing out now. Unhappiness comes in the mind. Breathing in, there is unhappiness in the mind. 
and notice. Just notice. Focus is on breathing in and breathing out. So our sensations in the body, our thoughts in the mind, ideas, the moment the, the attention is lost, again you realize, oh my attention has drifted away from the breath. Don't get upset. Bring it back to the breathing in, breathing out. Mindfulness. And this is the this is a very important part of Buddhist meditation. And this is further developed into, it deepens into the eighth step, which is Samadhi. Samadhi is deep meditation. And the Buddhist uh, path is one of, um, actually one of meditation. Buddha himself attained enlightenment through meditation. The focused, clear mind, purified and focused mind, can reveal the secrets of the universe and about oneself. So, um, that leads to bodhi, enlightenment. And that bodhi, after that enlightenment, all craving fades away. When the craving goes away, the sorrows also go away. So notice, eightfold way is the cause, the marga is the cause, and the effect is the third noble truth, nirvana. And the third noble truth, cessation, leads to the removal of the the um, second noble truth, that is the desire. And when the desire is gone, the first noble truth, suffering, that is gone. So you see the causality which works. There are two sets of cause and effect here. First set is sorrow is the effect and uh, the, uh, desire is the cause. First noble truth, second noble truth. The second set of cause and effect is nirvana is the effect and uh, eightfold path is the cause. So eightfold path leading to nirvana, leading to the cessation of sorrow, uh, cessation of desire, to, to the cessation of sorrow. Very logical uh, approach. Swami Vivekananda said that Buddha was the sanest man who ever lived. No cobwebs in that brain. Swami Vivekananda had a great, great admiration for, the, uh, for Bhagavan Buddha. So on this day, we pray to the Buddha and all bodhisattvas. By their blessing, may we attain to enlightenment in this life itself and cross over the ocean of sorrow. Stay well everybody. Take care and stay safe. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu